Well, we want to welcome you back to another Sunday afternoon edition of Then and Now with Ed Stevens joining us here in the studio. Drop in the chat room, come on by, and say hello. Joining us from Pennsylvania, my friend Ed Stevens, how are you doing? I'm doing real peachy. Peachy? You got some peaches growing there or what? No, but uh, I had some blueberry ice cream last night. That was sure good. Yeah, you know, I don't think uh, describing your time as a good time would go very well with blueberries. Oh, my. Well, I like like blueberries. I don't know about you, but uh, they're one of my favorites. Oh, yeah, I love them too. What I meant is it, it it wouldn't sound very good if you said I had a blueberry of a time. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I said peachy, uh, just as an expression. I mean, that's something you hear down in uh, Georgia. Georgia, probably. Right. Georgia. Well, we grow some wonderful peaches here in Southern California too. I, we're, we're right at that same latitude as Georgia, and so we can plant peach trees in our backyard, and they just bloop, plump right up in the uh, springtime and good to go. You probably don't have as much rain to help them grow fast uh, as they do in Georgia, though. They've Definitely got a, a warmer and well, not a warmer, but a uh, a more uh, mild, rainy climate than you do there in Southern Cal. Right, right. Well, my friend, I'm going to go ahead and turn things over to you and let us uh, tell let you tell us a little bit about Jude and his grandsons. All right, thanks. Well, this is going to be a very interesting broadcast for a lot of us uh, because it's going to deal with one of the uh, big objections that futurists lodge against all of us preterists. It's, it's not just uh, against the rapture preterists, but this this is an objection that that the futurists use to nail all of us uh, preterists with. And so we want to look at that. Uh, it's Jude's grandsons, and supposedly, according to Eusebius, who's depending on Irenaeus and Hegesippus for his source of information. Um, supposedly, two of grandson, two grandsons of uh, Jude, uh, lived in the days of Domitian after 70 A.D. and um, said some things and did some things. Uh, and we're going to talk about that. I'll tell the story here, but but uh, this is going to be a very interesting broadcast, I think, for all of us who are preterists. And in the coming weeks, uh, we're now down into the uh, AD 62 to 66 area of history, and this is when all the fireworks begin to to explode in the sky uh, for us preterists. Uh, this is when all the history begins to come to a focus and a, and a sharp focus uh, eschatologically. And so uh, if you've been sleeping through some of my podcasts in the past, this is one of them and the future ones uh, that you'll want to start uh, waking up and paying close attention to because this is really where these fulfillments that Jesus mentions in Matthew chapter 24 begin to uh, happen. And so we're going to be dealing with those and uh, the episode of Jude's grandsons, I believe, fits right into the whole historical uh, scenario here in 62 to 66 AD, and we're just now beginning to deal with that period of time uh, leading up to the revolt, and I believe that's when 
these two son, uh, grandsons of Jude appeared uh, before Nero's uh, tribunal and um, gave their testimony, and we're going to talk about that. Um, for those of you who are listening live, of course, the lesson outline is obviously not yet available for you to download, but if you're listening to this later on, uh, you'll want to download the PDF lesson outline first and open it in your Adobe Reader program so that you can have it in front of you as you listen to this podcast. Uh, any sources for more information, uh, which are mentioned here on the podcast, also are going to be listed in that lesson outline uh, so that you won't have to write them down. But you'll want to get this open on the screen in front of you or print it out. Uh, so that you'll have it uh, available to you to look at while we uh, discuss it. And the reason why that's important, especially for this broadcast, is because uh, we're going to be reading this story about Jude's two grandsons directly out of Eusebius. And I've got that printed in the outline here, so uh, you'll be able to see it and, and you'll get the impact of it a lot better if you can see it on the screen as I'm reading it. So... Uh, you may want to stop the uh, the broadcast at this point and go get that lesson outline open and then continue listening. Uh, last time we discussed the sequence of writing and the probable date ranges for the four Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we noted that uh, the gospel, the two Gospels of Matthew and Mark were probably written within the range of AD 39 to 49, that decade there, uh, from about the time uh, Caligula tried to put his statue up in in the temple in Jerusalem, down until the time of the Jerusalem Council, 10 years later. Somewhere in that decade of time, I believe, is when Matthew and Mark were written. Obviously, before the uh, Jerusalem Council in 50 or 49 AD, and before Paul's second missionary journey, which occurred right after that council. Uh, and it was in that second missionary journey where Paul wrote First and Second Thessalonians. And that's very important to remember because First uh, and Thessalonians are our key witnesses on behalf of this early date for Matthew especially. Uh, and, we're, you know, we talked about that last time, how if you compare... 1 Thessalonians 4 and chapter 5, and also 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, with Matthew 24, you can see a couple dozen at least similarities, if not direct allusions to Matthew 24, uh, implying that uh, not only had Paul seen the gospel of Matthew, but probably had it open in front of him, right beside him as he was writing his two letters to the Thessalonians. So um, those numerous parallels and allusions in, uh, to Matthew 24 imply that he had seen the Gospel of Matthew and had it available to him as he was writing his two letters to Thessalonica. Uh, I, in the meantime, since last week, I discovered a quote from Eusebius that I thought I would share with you that has some relationship to Matthew's gospel. Um, in the uh, Ecclesiastical History of Eusebius, Book 3, 
chapter 24, section 6. He says that Matthew, who had first preached to the Hebrews, when he was about to go to other peoples, committed his gospel to writing in his native tongue, which is either Hebrew or Aramaic, and thus compensated those whom he was obliged to leave uh, for the loss of his presence. And so that implies uh, and flat out says that um, Matthew composed his gospel or or maybe even translated his gospel uh, into Hebrew before he left Judea to go to other nations and preach the gospel. Uh, And this allows for the possibility that Matthew may have translated the Greek version of his gospel back into Hebrew or vice versa. He could have written the Hebrew account first and then translated it into Greek so he could take it with him uh, to preach to the Gentiles. Uh, We don't know which one came first, the Hebrew version or the English, I mean the Greek version uh, of that. But Eusebius seems to be pretty emphatic that that did occur and there are other historians in the first two centuries that allege the same thing, that Matthew did compose his gospel in Hebrew as well as uh, Greek. Okay, uh, and then we talked about last time the uh, how Luke seems to quote from and allude to both Matthew and Mark, implying that Luke wrote after Matthew and Mark were already available. But he does not quote anything or allude to anything that's unique in the Gospel of John, implying that Luke then must have been written before uh, John was written. And then we talked about the book of Acts and the Gospel of John, how John was written uh, evidently uh, after the other three Gospels were already available uh, because uh, John quotes some stuff and alludes to some stories in Luke that neither Matthew or Mark have, and he embellishes those stories, showing that uh, he had more information and wrote after Luke had introduced the story. So uh, that'll help us, I think, in our understanding of, of those four Gospels. Now, in this lesson, we want to deal with the historical enigma that has been used by the futurists to attack uh, the preterist view. And I want to deal with that before we pick back up with Paul near the end of his two years imprisonment in Caesarea and uh, before we deal with his voyage to Rome, probably next week, hopefully. Uh, and that's the problem uh, that, that I'm referring to here about the story of Jude's two grandsons who were supposedly arrested and interrogated by Domitian Caesar sometime after 70 A.D., Now, here's the story. I want to read it before we talk about it and figure out how to solve the enigma that the futurists have posed. Uh, Here's the story from Book 3 of the Ecclesiastical History by Eusebius, uh, Chapter 17 and following, down to uh, Chapter 20. Now, there's it's not a lot of text. It's a couple of pages. It'll and I'll try to breeze through it here real quickly. Uh, it, those of you who have it 
on the screen in front of you, of course, uh, who are listening to this later on, uh, will not have to uh, to worry about it. You'll have it right there in front of you. But it says here, uh, Domitian, having shown great cruelty toward many and having unjustly put to death no small number of well-born and notable men at Rome, and having without cause exiled exiled and confiscated the property of a great many other illustrious men, finally became a successor of Nero in his hatred and enmity toward God. He was, in fact, the second that stirred up a persecution against us, although his father, Vespasian, had undertaken nothing prejudicial to us. It is said that in in this persecution, the apostle and evangelist John, who was still alive, was condemned to dwell on the island of Patmos in consequence of his testimony to the divine word. Now, that should be a red flag for all of us preterists, especially even Ken Gentry, uh, who claims that the book of Revelation was written before uh, 70 A.D. Uh, And in fact, if we believe, like Matthew 20 and Mark 10 teaches, that John died before the parousia, then that means that uh, this incident that we're reading about here could not have occurred in the reign of Domitian after 70 AD. So here's a little red flag for us already that these events that Eusebius is placing after 70 AD may be and and in fact are uh, events that occurred before 70 AD. But here he he says, uh, it is said that in this persecution, the apostle and evangelist John, who was still alive, was condemned to dwell on the island of Patmos in consequence of his testimony to the divine word. Now, notice Eusebius here quotes Irenaeus as his source for this story about John. Irenaeus, in the fifth book of his work, Against Heresies, where he discusses the number of the name of Antichrist, which is given in the so-called Apocalypse of John, speaks as follows concerning him. If it were necessary for his name to be proclaimed openly at the present time, it would have been declared by him who saw the revelation, for he or it, is ambiguous in the Greek there, he or it was seen not long ago, but almost in our own generation, at the end of the reign of Domitian. Now, again, for those of us who are preterist, uh, there's no problem there. We know that that has to be referring to Nero, and that there was some mistake, some historical mistake made by either Eusebius or his source Irenaeus, or by Irenaeus's source Hegesippus and Papias, uh, so that they confused the name of the Caesar under which these events occurred. Now, Eusebius goes on. He says, To such a degree, indeed, did the teaching of our faith flourish at that time that even those writers who were far from our religion did not hesitate to mention in their histories the persecution and the martyrdoms which took place during it. And they indeed accurately indicated the time, for they recorded that in the 15th year of Domitian, Flavia Domitila, daughter of a sister of Flavius Clement, who at that time was one of the consuls of Rome, was exiled with many others to the island of Pontia in consequence of testimony borne to Christ. But when this same Domitian 
had commanded that the descendants of David should be slain, an ancient tradition says that some of the heretics brought accusation against the descendants of Jude, said to have been a brother of the Savior according to the flesh, on the ground that they were of the lineage of David and were related to Christ himself. Hegesippus relates these facts in the following words. Now, this is where Eusebius branches off from Irenaeus, or else Irenaeus is quoting Hegesippus, but uh, at least Eusebius is making note of the fact that his source for this is Hegesippus. And he says, Hegesippus relates these facts in the following words. And here's where he talks about the two grandsons of Jude. Of the family of the Lord, there were still living the grandsons of Jude, who is said to have been the Lord's brother according to the flesh. Information was given that they belonged to the family of David, and they were brought to the emperor Domitian uh, by the Avocatus. For he, Domitian, feared the Perusia. That's interesting in the Greek here. I, I pull this out. It's not in the English translation of Eusebius, but in the Greek, it says Perusia. And it says that Domitian feared the Perusia of Christ, just as Herod also had feared it. Now, that's an interesting story, and I wish we could spend a little time talking about that. I'd like to take us back to to some of the statements that we looked at back when we were dealing with the intertestamental history, uh, where we talked about Herod's absolute paranoia about other rival kings uh, coming to replace him. And so uh, it's interesting here that Eusebius uh, notes that very thing in regard to Herod and Domitian, that both of them feared the parousia of Christ. Um, and he asked them if they were descendants of David, and they confessed that they were. Then he asked them how much property they had or how much money they owned. And both of them answered that they had only 9,000 denarii, half of which belonged to each of them. And this property did not consist of silver, but of a piece of land which contained only 39 acres, and from which they raised their taxes and supported themselves by their own labor. Then they showed their hands, exhibiting the hardness of their bodies and the callousness produced upon their hands by continuous toil as evidence of their own labor. And when they were asked concerning Christ and his kingdom, of what sort it was and where and when it was to appear, they answered that it was not a temporal nor an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly and angelic one, which would appear at the end of the world when he should come in glory to judge the quick and the dead and to give to everyone according to his works. Upon hearing this, Domitian did not pass judgment against them, but despising them as of no account, he let them go and by a decree put a stop to the persecution of the church. But when they were released, they ruled the churches because they were witnesses 
and were also relatives of the Lord. And peace being established, they lived until the time of Trajan. These things are related by Hegesippus. Tertullian also has mentioned Domitian in the following words. Domitian, also who possessed a share of Nero's cruelty, attempted once to do the same thing that the latter did. But because he had, I suppose, some intelligence, he very soon ceased and even recalled those whom he had banished. But after Domitian had reigned fifteen years and Nerva had succeeded to the empire, the Roman Senate, according to the writers that record the history of those days, voted that Domitian's honors should be canceled and that those who had been unjustly banished should return to their homes and have their property restored to them. It was at this time that the Apostle John returned from his banishment in the island and took up his abode at Ephesus according to an ancient Christian tradition. Now, notice he doesn't name his source here, and that he bookends this these two stories about John and the sons of Jude as uh, part of Hegesippus and Irenaeus's account, who evidently were quoting an unnamed source. Uh, and it's, it's peculiar here that Eusebius does not know what the source of Hegesippus and Papias and Irenaeus were other than uh, Papias, perhaps. Uh, but there's a little bit of uh, unhistorical uh, hanky-panky going on here in their claiming uh, these traditions to be true when they don't name their sources. Okay, so here's the problem. Our futurist uh, critics are quick to point out that these two grandsons of Jude who are obviously Christians, are also obviously very aware of the nature of fulfillment. Uh, notice the language they used about the nature of becoming parousia. Not only did they say that it was still future, but they, they are very clear about the nature of it. Notice they say, uh, uh, let me get back up here, um, when they were asked concerning Christ and his kingdom of what sort it was and where and when it was to appear. Notice they, they're asked when it was going to appear. Very, very important point to remember when we talk about this later. They were asked, when is this going to happen? When is this going to appear? And they answered that it was not a temporal nor earthly kingdom, but a heavenly and angelic one which would appear at the end of the world, the end of the age, which they believed, obviously, was still future, when he should come in glory to judge the quick and the dead and to give to everyone according to his work. So this was a judgment coming in glory at the end of the age, in the heavenly angelic realm, okay, and it was still future at the time these two grandsons were talking to uh, their 
their captors. Okay, now, this is the point that the uh, futurists try to make, that these two grandsons of Jude were obviously aware of the nature of fulfillment. They knew how it was supposed to be fulfilled, and they knew where it was supposed to happen in the heavenly realm, and they knew uh, that it was going to entail the judgment of all nations, the quick and the dead, the living and the dead, not just the living and not just the saints, but all human beings would be judged there, all the dead and all the living, are obviously very aware of the nature of fulfillment. And also, just as obviously, if this was happening after 70 A.D., then it also shows that they were very, very unaware of the time of fulfillment. They're very aware aware of the nature of fulfillment, but not aware of the time of fulfillment. You see the problem there? I mean, this is extremely interesting for our futurist critics. They jab us with this dilemma constantly. I mean, I've heard half a dozen guys uh, nail me with that over the past decade. A couple of examples are Ken Gentry and Charles Hill. In in, uh, his chapter in Matheson's book, Charles Hill uh, brings up this very issue, this very story about the two grandsons of Jude and rams it down our throats uh, and says, looky here, what do you do with that, you preterist? And we need to note here that that they use it against all preterists, not just rapture preterists. Uh, this is something that they use against all of us, and so all of us need to struggle with this and deal with it in a convincing and satisfying way. So how do we do it? Uh, real simple. I think uh, uh, we need to deal with it the same way we dealt with the uh, story about John being seen not long after uh, uh, the the first century, you know that that he was exiled in the the reign of Nero, uh, and we show how the sources of of Eusebius and Irenaeus and Hegesippus and Papias were may may have been corrupted or mistaken in their reference to Domitian uh, instead of Nero. That they should have been referring to Nero, and the reason why they missed it and misunderstood it is because Nero's name was Nero Domitius, and so there's a lot of people who confused Nero with Domitian because of that very fact that that Nero's name was Domitius. Evidently, Jude's son, which was the father of these two grandsons, uh. And the grandsons themselves were not aware of the fulfillment of these things at 70 A.D. And we have to ask, if we're a futurist and believe that this occurred after 70 A.D., we have to ask the question, why hadn't Jude told his son and grandsons about the parousia occurring in 70 A.D.? Didn't Jude know about the return of his brother Jesus in 70 A.D.? If not, why not? How in the world could he miss it? Why didn't he pass that info along to his son and grandsons? In view of his inspired status, and I'm I'm reading here the arguments of Chuck Hill and Ken Gentry and all of our futurist critics. This, This is how they 
pose the problem for us preterists. Why didn't Jude pass that information along to his son and his two grandsons? In view of his inspired status as a true Christian and writer of one of the books of our New Testament, it seems pretty safe to assume that Jude would have known that Christ returned in AD 70 if he lived until that event. If his son and grandsons were true Christians at the time of the parousia, they would also have known that the parousia had occurred. However, uh, as you can see, there's lots of uncertainties involved in this story. For instance, we do not know for sure that the grandsons were Christians before the parousia, nor whether Jude himself even survived until or after the parousia. So there's a lot of uncertainties here that uh, have to be factored in to uh, this whole scenario. Since Jude was definitely a true Christian at the time of the writing of his book in AD 64, which I believe uh, uh, he wrote about the same time Peter wrote his second epistle, because they're very similar, they have a lot of the same content in reference to uh, the mockers and so on. And so it, is, it appears that they were written about the same time. And we know that Peter wrote his second epistle in about 64 after he'd been arrested and was nearing his death because of the Neronian persecution. Uh, so Jude wrote about the same time. And Jude probably was killed in that same persecution about the same time Peter was. Uh, but he would have been either raptured at the parousia if he lived until the parousia or killed before the parousia like James, his brother, and like John and like Peter and Paul in the Neronic persecution. If he was killed in the Neronic persecution, then his family might have fled the country when the Judean Christians fled to Pella. However, we don't know whether his son and grandsons were even Christians at that time or not. Nor do we know whether the grandsons had even been born yet before the parousia. If the son of Jude was still alive and was a true Christian at the time of the parousia, then he would have been raptured along with Jude. Or he would have lived, if there was no rapture, he would have lived on beyond AD 70 and would have been aware that the parousia had occurred. And if, if he had died before 70 AD, that means the grandsons would have had to have been born before uh, the parousia. But there's no proof then that they would have been Christians yet uh, at that time, even though they had been born. So there's a, just a lot of uncertainties and a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, uh, questions here that have to be raised before we have to accept the futurist uh, perspective on this. Uh, and so they're going to have to justify an awful lot of questions from us first before we have to address their uh, uh, explanation of the situation. So the problem is we simply do not know which, if any, of these scenarios are the correct scenario or whether the solution lies somewhere else. And I'm going to suggest that it lies somewhere else. And that is the idea that these two grandsons 
were arrested and brought before Nero's court uh, before 70 AD, before the Parousia, and not after 70 AD, like Eusebius and Irenaeus and Hegesippus are suggesting here. Uh, so there's a huge problem here uh, for not only the futurist, but for the preterist as well. We have the burden of explaining how Jude's grandsons, who seemed to be Christians at the time they were arrested at least, could have been so ignorant about the past occurrence of the parousia and all of its related events, because they were very clear about what all had to happen at the parousia. But they did not understand that it was past when they were talking about it. So uh, if they or their parents were alive and were true Christians at the time of the parousia, they would have known that the parousia occurred. The New Testament writers are too specific about what the true Christians would expect to see and hear and experience at the parousia. There's no wiggle room here for preterists to say that the true Christians either missed the significance of AD 70 or simply went on their merry way and never again mentioned it because it wasn't a big deal to them. Uh, that approach simply uh, will not work in view of all the expectations that they had and uh, their statements, uh, how long, O Lord, and O our Lord come, and how they were longing for his coming, etc. I mean, they were really anxiously expecting it and longing for it, and there's just no way they could have missed it when it occurred. And so uh, the ignorance here of these two grandsons about the occurrence of the parousia is extremely difficult to explain if this event occurred after 70 AD uh, because their ignorance of the parousia would bring a reproach upon not only Jude but any other pre-70 AD Christians who live beyond 70 uh, and who failed to mention the fact that the parousia had already occurred. Uh, it would bring reproach on the honesty, integrity, and dignity and credibility of any of those apostles and pre-70 saints who lived beyond 70 AD and refused or failed to mention the fact that the parousia had occurred. If they were true Christians at the time of the parousia, these two grandsons, uh, and we're still around after witnessing and experiencing those momentous events. They would have said something to indicate that those big three events had already occurred. They would have been aware of it. There's no way they could have escaped it. They would have spoken up when Papias, Polycarp, and Ignatius started saying later on down the road that the parousia was still future. They would have set the record straight. Not to do so would have been criminal negligence and would have discredited them as being true witnesses for Christ. Especially if somebody like Apostle John was still around. We know he had to have experienced and been aware of the parousia. And if he was still around after 70 AD, uh, he would have set the record straight. He would not have let Papias, Polycarp, and Ignatius teach the idea that the parousia was still future. And so there's a real problem here for uh, these 
two grandsons being ignorant of the parousia, when in fact they were very, very much aware of the nature of fulfillment. How could they understand the nature of fulfillment so well but miss the time of fulfillment? Uh, that That's a, a very troubling question, which I believe we preterists need to be very, very diligent and careful to answer and convincing in our answer. However we slice it, the grandsons of Jude do seem to be totally ignorant of the occurrence of the parousia. How do we explain this ignorance? The futurists use this ignorance to prove that the parousia did not occur. But preterists do not have that option. So, how do we preterists explain this ignorance? Well, here's two possible scenarios that I want to consider. And I'm going to have to take a drink of water here. Uh, my voice is getting a little dry. I've been a week out of practice here, so I didn't get my voice back <laughs> in shape. Yeah, you know what happens to the best of us, Ed. And, oh. uh, and I'm not even one of the best of us, so I still get dry mouth. Well, it's my, it's my voice. My vocal cords are getting a little dry here and raspy. <clears throat> Okay, here's two possible scenarios that we can consider uh, to respond to this futurist attack uh, based on the ignorance of the time of fulfillment uh, that these two grandsons had. How do we answer that? Well, number one, here's one possible way to answer it. Jude's grandsons were not Christians at the time of the parousia and simply did not know that the parousia had occurred nor what had happened to any of their family members who were Christians. They would have simply assumed that their Christian friends and family had all been killed in the Neuronic persecution or in the Jewish war. Then sometime after the war, the grandsons would have become Christians and being totally unaware that the parousia had already occurred. Although this is a hard pill to swallow for the futurist, uh, it is a possibility which uh, deserves consideration and further analysis. However, it's not a very satisfying theory for me because it still begs the question on their ignorance. I mean, how could they be so ignorant? Even if they were not Christians at the time of the parousia, uh, they still were related to Jude and uh, to Jesus' family and uh, it'd be hard to believe that they would not be aware of all those events that were occurring uh, to their family members. Uh, so uh, it, it's nevertheless has to be one of the possibilities that we have to leave open uh, as a possibility. Uh, but I don't take that theory. I think I think there's a better answer to that. Uh, and it's number two is this idea that the story about Jude's grandsons does not belong to the period after the war in Domitian's reign, like Eusebius and Irenaeus and Hegesippus are suggesting. I believe that this story about the two grandsons of Jude belongs to the period before the war, uh, especially this very period that we're in the middle of studying right now, from A.D. 62 to A.D. 66, when the Romans and Jews were both persecuting Christians like this very story shows. Uh, 
it is a case of mistaken historical placement. It is this particular option that I believe uh, uh, is 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 the best answer to this whole scenario that the futurists are uh, lambasting us with. And I'm going to follow this uh, explanation in my uh, studies here uh, in answering this uh, enigma. And it's the it's the approach I believe which all of us preterists will need to take in order to consistently and satisfyingly explain the ignorance of the grandsons about the past parousia. In other words, they did not know about the occurrence of the parousia because it had not happened yet. I mean, that's the easiest way to explain their ignorance is they didn't know about it happening because it hadn't happened yet. I believe this whole story about uh, the grandsons of Jude has been botched in the same way the story about John seeing the apocalypse in the reign of Domitian was botched by Irenaeus and his sources. Uh, it's in the same context of Eusebius. And so it wouldn't take any stretch of the imagination to believe that the same mistakes that produced the mistaken identity of Domitian in John's case were the same mistakes that led to uh, this misidentification of Domitian here in the story of Jude's two grandsons. So it's in the same context, and Eusebius is using the same sources, and so there's no reason why we can't use the same approach that Ken Gentry does in establishing the date of of the book of Revelation in Nero's reign instead of Domitian's reign uh, using this very approach. Uh, there's no reason why we can't use that same approach that Ken Gentry does. And so uh, I would turn the tables right back on Ken Gentry because he's been one of the ones that's used this story about the two grandsons against us. Uh, and I'm just simply going to say, well, if it's okay for you to use that approach in discrediting Irenaeus's story about John being seen in the reign of Domitian, then it's okay for us, preterists, to use that same approach and discredit uh, Irenaeus's story uh, in regard to the two grandsons of of uh, Jude. So that's what I'm doing. I think that's the best approach, and there's no way in the world Ken Gentry or Keith Matheson or uh, Chuck Hill can successfully argue against that because they themselves, uh, at least Gentry and Matheson, use that, that very approach against uh, the futurist when they date uh, the book of Revelation. All right, uh, this whole story has been botched the same way the story about the book of Revelation being written in Domitian's reign. Mm -hmm. Irenaeus did not realize that his sources were referring to Nero Domitius instead of Flavius Domitian. Eusebius doubted the genuineness of Revelation because of this blunder by Irenaeus, 
and his sources, which were Papias and Hegesippus, and maybe some others. According to this theory, Papias and Hegesippus did not realize that the reference to Domitian by some of their sources was a reference to Nero, and therefore mistakenly thought it was referring to the Flavian emperor Domitian. Plus, there was another mistake in regard to two different men with the name John. Uh, we note that uh, uh, Ken Gentry in his book, Before Jerusalem Fell, he talks about this controversy in uh, Eusebius and Hegesippus. Uh, and uh, even Irenaeus picked up on it uh, that, that, that there were two different Johns. One was the apostle and the other one was the elder, John the elder. And that uh, Irenaeus failed to make the distinction between those two. And that was the reason why um, they thought Domitian was the emperor at the time the book of Revelation was written. So it's that kind of historical blunder that has wreaked havoc on all of our attempts to not only date the book of Revelation, uh, but to know who its real author was. That's why Eusebius doubted that it was actually the Apostle John because he thought it might be that other John, the, the elder, who wrote it because he wasn't sure from the sources uh, which John it was talking about. And this blunder has also uh, messed up the inspiration of the book of Revelation because Eusebius was not sure if, if, it, was, if it was written by an apostle and if it was not, then that means it was not inspired and should not be in the canon. And it's also uh, hindered us from being able to pinpoint the real persecution under which the book of Revelation was written. And has prevented us from being able to re reconstruct consistently and convincingly the history surrounding the writing of the book of Revelation and the latter years of John's life and his martyrdom. And so uh, these very blunders that Ken Gentry uses to date the book of Revelation before 70 can be used also to move this story about two grandsons of Jude back into the pre-70 period. Uh, and that's exactly what I think is the best solution to this whole scenario. It's consistent. It's using the sources the same way Ken Gentry and other partial preterists are using them, and so there's no way they can have any complaint about us using those sources the same way they are. Foy Wallace, Milton Terry, Ken Gentry, and several other careful and reputable scholars of the past 200 years have staunchly defended the notion that either the sources of Irenaeus, which were Papias and Hegesippus, were inaccurate and mistaken or that Irenaeus himself misread and misunderstood those sources, thus rendering his statements worthless as evidence for a late date. And I, I recommend especially seeing the uh, treatment of this in Foy Wallace on pages 21 through 28, and Ken Gentry's book, Before Jerusalem Fell, uh, the 1998 revised edition, uh, pages 40. Five through 67. Uh, they really make some good arguments about this. 
in defense of the early date of Revelation. And we just take those arguments, lift them out, and apply them to this story um, about the two grandsons of Jude, and I think it'll solve our problem. I, I suspect that something like this very controversy over the two different Domitians is involved here in this tradition about the grandsons of Jude. And I'm going to have to get another drink here. Hold on just a minute. Ah, that's great. Okay, good ice water. All right, so what if it was Nero Domitius and not the Flavian Domitian who ordered the grandsons of Jude to be interrogated by his Roman representatives in Palestine. Now, uh, the futurists are going to be quick to point out, well, it says that he appeared before, or that they appeared before uh, Domitian. But it doesn't say that they appeared before Domitian in Rome. And that's, that's an inference that they're drawing, which is unwarranted from the text. Uh, and what what else is interesting is that Caesar's tribunal in Caesarea, where the procurator has had, had his residence in Herod's uh, palace there in Caesarea, that was the tribunal of the Caesars. And that's where they went first. If they were going to be tried under Roman law, uh, they, they were taken to Caesarea and tried there at the palace of Herod, uh, where the procurator uh, resided. And if, if that wasn't good enough, then they would be taken to Antioch, where the legate of Syria had his tribunal of Caesar. And so it's very easy to understand why uh, Eusebius and Irenaeus and Hegesippus may refer to them appearing before Domitian or before Caesar uh, if they went merely to Caesarea or Antioch because both of those cities had a, uh, a court for Caesar right there in Caesarea and Antioch. So uh, there's no problem explaining why it refers to them appearing before the, the, the court of Domitian because that could have happened right there in Palestine, in Caesarea or Antioch. Okay. Um, let's see what else we need to cover here. We're running down in our time. It'd be easy to see that the same thing is happening here in regard to the identity of the emperor of Domitian, actually being Nero, a mistaken identity here, that it's Nero under whose authority the grandsons were arrested and interrogated, especially since Eusebius is using the same corrupt sources uh, for both stories. And so it's, it's no problem connecting these two stories and using the same approach to explain them uh, because they're both in the same context and they're both, both using the same corrupt sources. 
All right. I think that's probably uh, uh, all we need to say about that. I, I think that's how and easily solve this problem that the futurists have posed. Uh, and I don't know if you're still there, Mike, but... Uh, yes, sir. ...against uh, Domitian being in power at the time the book of Revelation was written. And what do you think about using that approach toward the two grandsons of, of Jude? You know, either one of those is a... Uh, you know, it's so difficult knowing that uh, both Domitian and Nero had uh, the same title. And so, you know, the question obviously comes down to, you know, I don't want to say which one do you pick, but it really comes down to uh, rhetoric. And so, you know, it's it's kind of unfortunate when you have to deal with both of those. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense because uh, uh, it's in the same context of Eusebius and right. it's using the same sources. Right. Yeah, and definitely that's one of those things you have to do. You have to look at all the different sources and whatnot. And I think that a lot of times people, they'll just look at, uh, again, that name Domitian, and they just think that automatically, well, that just means Domitian. Well, you know, it could have meant a number of people. The first story about John being seen in the reign of Domitian, we know that has to be Nero. And that's the same person that he is using in the second story in the same context, under the same sources. So I think there's a, a good logical plan there, and I would like to see how Ken Gentry would react. to. This. I may send this uh, proposal to him and see what he does with it. I'm sure he's going to say, well, just because it's in the same context and just because it's using the same sources doesn't mean that they're mistaken. They could have been mistaken on the first story, but on the second story. I mean, he's going to weasel his way out of it, but but uh, there's no way he can prove uh, it's it's not a good approach because he himself uses that very approach on the first story. Right, right. Okay, I think that uh, pretty well wraps up that. Uh, if there's anyone who has listened to this and had any questions uh, that they would like to bring up about that, uh, be sure and email me uh, and bring those questions to my attention, and I'll deal with them next week uh, in our next study. Uh, I don't know if there was any questions in the chat room, Mike. Did uh, you... Not anyone in particular, no. Uh, been interesting for our listeners. I'm sorry, say that again. I lost you there for just a moment. A chat room that would be interesting for our listeners to hear. You know, I'm again, Ed, I do apologize. We're having a little bit of a con uh, connectivity issue there. Can you say that again? Okay, Ed, just go ahead and say that again. We're having a connect connectivity issue. Okay, so you're. Uh, uh, I was just asking if there was any comments uh, about this uh, argumentation in the uh, chat room so that uh, we could share those comments with our listeners. Yeah, this time there was not any comments in particular, just uh, general banter back and forth. Good. Okay. All righty, my friend. Well, we will see well, you back here. Um, Did you have any other... So uh, this puts uh, this event back in the time before 70 AD. And what's interesting about it, if you look at the 
the way the nature of the parousia, uh, it points out that, that they were aware of certain statements that we do not see recorded or written down for us until after 62 A.D. Uh, for instance, statements that reflect an awareness of the book of James and uh, First and Second Peter, etc., or at least First Peter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so their awareness of of the nature of fulfillment uh, and their description of the nature of fulfillment reflects uh, an awareness of material that would not have been available to them until around 62 A.D. or later. So that suggests that that they were brought up before Nero's tribunal, either in Caesarea or Antioch, uh, sometime between 62 A.D. and 66 A.D. Uh, this would not have been a likely scenario to occur after the war broke out. Uh, because they would not have been... Uh, farming their land they would not have been free to to uh, work on their land and raise crops etc after the war broke out uh, Vespasian traveled all through uh, the whole territory outside of Judea and rounded up all the citizens who were out there so it would not have been safe for them to be farming at the time after the war broke out so this story has to have occurred somewhere between 62 and 66 A.D. That's where I would date it and place it. Uh, That's the most likely time. Uh, And all the facts surrounding the story would not fit any other time. Uh, It would certainly not fit after 70 A.D. because uh, they would not have been left on the land to farm their land after 70 A.D. They would have been rounded up with all the other Jews on the land and sent off to uh, slavery or to work in the mines or whatever. So uh, there's just no way this could have happened after 70 A.D. It only fits in that tight time frame between 62 and 66. And so that's where I'm going to place it, and um, that's my story, and I'm going to stick with it. (laughs) That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. That's it. And uh, your email address, Ed, in case anybody has any questions for you regarding the program? Please do. I, I would love to hear from you. Uh, the email address is preterist1 at preterist.org. And you can also go to our website and post a message there uh, if you want to. Our website is preterist.org. All righty, my friend. We'll see you back here next week for another edition of Then and Now. God bless. You are, tuned, you are tuned to listener-supported AD70.net. We're Christian radio from a slightly different point of view. We're putting sanity back into Christianity each and every day, and we'd like to invite you to follow along with us. If you'd like to help us take this message of fulfillment to the uttermost parts of the earth, you can do so by heading over to our website, AD70.net. There's a support tab located on the left-hand side of the page. As well, if you'd like to get a copy of this or any of our previous live broadcasts, simply point your browser to our podcast page located at thepodcast.org. We'll see you back here next time.